You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this morning, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, We're looking together at Acts chapter 8, and we'll read 26 through 40. Acts chapter 8, and we'll read verses 26 through 40. Hear the word of God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Well, I think this passage like others, is meant to show the continuing advancement of the kingdom of God. Salvation will be offered to all peoples, including those who are in Ethiopia. And some think that the eunuch would be instrumental to diffuse the knowledge of Christ in that land. I want you to notice that an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and directed him to a certain road. And noteworthy is the fact that Luke adds, this is a desert place. In other words, the road was usually uninhabited, lonely, and desolate. It was one of the least frequented roads between Jerusalem and Gaza. So Philip was told, mind you, to leave a thriving ministry in Samaria for an isolated road in Gaza. And it must have seemed very strange to him. It appeared strategically foolish. 
Thousands had been hanging upon his every word, and multitudes had been converted. Acts chapter 8 says, The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So humanly speaking, it seemed like a waste of time, a wild goose chase to go to this desert road. Like Abraham called from the Ur of the Chaldeans, Philip had only God's word to go by. And as then, so now, the command of the Lord should be enough for any of us. So Philip rose and he went. He moved out in faith, trusting in the Lord. And does it not highlight the sovereignty of the Spirit in the work of evangelism? We're taught, rightly so, that he alone makes effectual the means of grace. That is to say, gospel preaching, for example, saves sinners only because he drives it home to their hearts. But he also guides and makes fruitful the whole evangelistic process. He's sovereign over the evangelism itself, and he's sovereign over the opportunities to evangelize. Philip was removed from large crowds to a desert road in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. Because the hound of heaven wanted that soul. That's why. The Ethiopian belonged to Jesus. If Philip himself was calling the shots, I bet you he would not have gone there. So in our evangelistic strategy, we should always remember that God is in control. We make our plans, which is not wrong, but he often changes them. And this is what Solomon tells us in Proverbs 16. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So Philip goes from preaching to thousands to sharing the gospel with one, and God has his purpose. Numbers are not the most important thing to him. Note that the Spirit controls not only the opportunities of evangelism, but also the timing. A man can hear the gospel a hundred times. He can attend worship for years, and it seems to have no effect on his soul. But then when he's ripened by the Spirit, he hears and he receives Christ. You may have heard the story about the young man who was attending church for quite some time until one Sunday he said, I'd like to join this church. So he met with the elders and he said to the elders, I'm not sure what happened, but you guys have done something to make the sermons far more interesting and the songs far more edifying and worship far more encouraging. What happened? And of course, they looked at each other and knew that he had been converted. He had been ripened. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So as we share the gospel with others, don't get discouraged by unbelief. Be patient. Trust the Lord. The Spirit is in charge and he knows exactly the right time with family members, with friends. And this also shows us that the best evangelism is not always the easiest or most obvious. You know, if I had been calling the shots, as I said earlier, I would have kept Philip in Samaria where the crowds were listening. At the very least, I would have kept him in a place where he was likely to meet people. 
But to send him to a desert road where he was likely to meet nobody would hardly be my strategy. But the all-knowing, all-powerful spirit wanted the Ethiopian eunuch. That man had been etched into the book of life from before the foundation of the world. And nothing was going to prevent him from hearing the good news about Jesus. And I think it should give us pause as we strategize. Sometimes the Spirit may lead you and I to the most unlikely places and to the most unlikely people. Perhaps someone who is so outwardly hardened that we think ourselves there is no chance of his or her conversion. Maybe it's a place where it seems that no one would be interested in hearing about Christ. One of your family members, an old friend, a colleague, is it downtown at the office with a neighbor or in the classroom? I think what we need to do is pray for discernment to recognize the opportunities that the Spirit gives and be patient. Of course, what's interesting about this eunuch is that he was from Ethiopia, probably not geographically identical with the modern country of Ethiopia. This was the ancient Nubian Empire of Moreau, situated on the Nile River. And at that time, it was a powerful empire with a flourishing pagan culture. And this particular eunuch was a high-ranking official in the Ethiopian government. And given the pervasive paganism in that region at that time, it's surprising to me to find him at Jerusalem, isn't it? How did this man come to know about the God of Israel? Some believe that the Queen of Sheba had been a native of this land and imported the knowledge that she had gained from Solomon. Centuries later then, the eunuch was in charge of the queen's treasury, the minister of finance, and he heard and he made this long, arduous journey to worship Yahweh. And as a eunuch, he had been castrated to serve among the royal harems. This was one way in which the king would ensure the safety of his concubines, as we know. So this man occupied this position of great power and influence. He had the run of the palace. And I find it interesting, as Elder Van Drunen read, that this man could never enter the temple. Deuteronomy 23 says clearly that eunuchs shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So he could visit Jerusalem. He could go see the temple, but he could never enter in. He was willing to make such a long journey to worship on the fringe, on the outside. After all, he was an outcast. He was marred and tainted as a human being. He was a religious reject, barred from full participation in Judaism. And even so, he came. He made the trip, and it had to cost a great deal. And given his position and his wealth and his influence, it's no surprise that he had secured a copy of the scriptures. They were rare indeed, very expensive. But God had given him the parchments. And he was able to read them, and better yet, he wanted to read them, and he was spiritually hungry, willing to eat scraps that fell from the Jewish table. And as we consider all the obstacles to his worship, it proves one thing. 
that this eunuch was seeking first, above all else, the kingdom of God. He was one of the richest men in Ethiopia, if not the whole world. And all of his temporal needs were met, but his spiritual hunger was intense. And I wonder how many of us, if any of us, have that kind of spiritual hunger. I ask myself that question. His journey to Jerusalem couldn't have been easy. It probably took two weeks or more. And he would have given anything for the privilege of entering into the temple. Clearly, the Holy Spirit had changed and enlarged his heart. And if, if we're devoted to something we know, practically nothing will keep us away. Think of youthful infatuations. Difficult to keep the two people apart, right? Would that the Spirit would enlarge our hearts like the Ethiopian eunuch. And God did not leave this hungry soul to remain on the outskirts of faith. He had made a promise long ago that he was determined to fulfill. In Isaiah 56, this is what it says. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So here we find this Ethiopian man who had been denied so much would be satisfied. In Jesus Christ, he would find everything that he longed for and then some. His conversion, which had seemed so unlikely, was a triumph of grace. He was not a covenant child. He was from a pagan culture. He was barred from the temple. He was on a desert road where no one expected to meet anybody else. But God had chosen him, and Christ had died for him, and the Spirit would use his word to convert him. Because you see, the Lord is in the business of unlikely conversions. He calls those who are not wise according to worldly standards or powerful or noble, but he chooses what's foolish and weak and low and despised to shame the world. He doesn't save some people who, he does save some people who enjoy wealth and power and nobility in the world, but these are relatively few. The kingdom really is filled with simple, obscure converts like many of us. And that's because the Lord takes great delight in unlikely candidates. A.C. Dyson tells the story of a Roman Catholic priest who one Sunday morning appeared before a congregation of a thousand people in an Illinois town. This is what the priest said. My people, I resign my priesthood, though I've been here 30 years. At their earnest request, he gave his reasons why he did so. He said, last night I spent every hour praising God. All sleep had left me. After reading the New Testament, I saw that salvation is in Jesus Christ and is the gift of God's eternal love. Penance is not in it. Purgatory is not in it. Absolution is not in it. On my knees in my room, I accepted the gift, and I love the giver. I walked the room most of the night saying to myself, I accept the gift and I love the giver. And thus, 
for an hour and a half, Father Chinique expounded to the people the grace of God. At the close of his message, he asked how many of them would join with him in accepting the gift and loving the giver. And every man, woman, and child, all but 40 of those thousand, responded, and in that town today, St. Anne, Illinois, there is a Presbyterian church that began from that remarkable event. Unlikely. But you know something? The truth is, we're all unlikely conversions. No one here is a likely candidate. Some of us are less likely than others, but all of us had dark, hard, dead hearts, blind to the things of the Spirit. How much more unlikely can you get? But for grace, no one would be converted. And this leads to a consideration of a conversion as revealed in the text. I think it illustrates how God ordinarily brings a sinner to faith in Christ. Four ways. First, it highlights the importance of God's word in the work of conversion. The eunuch was riding his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah, and it's obvious that he was reading out loud because Philip was able to hear him. The text was Isaiah 53, which describes the suffering of Jesus, who was disgraced, deprived of justice, and finally put to death. And the eunuch knew it was humiliation, but he didn't know who was humiliated. So from Isaiah 53, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And of course, it was no coincidence. God had ordained every detail. And just as he does with every conversion, he arranged the whole thing, your conversion and mine. And notice that Philip didn't use gimmicks or techniques or attention grabbers. The Ethiopian was brought to Christ by the plain explanation of the word. The crucified and risen Christ was the focal point of everything he said. Isaiah 53 led him to speak of God and man and sin and death and faith and salvation. And that's what Jesus himself did with the two on the road to Emmaus. When beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted it to them all about him in the scriptures. So the first step in an ordinary way of conversion is the truth of God's word. There must be the external call of the gospel. Paul says to the Romans, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see, conversion doesn't happen in a vacuum. God said he'll use his word in the salvation of sinners. And Peter calls it the living and abiding word of God. Second, the passage underscores the importance of the Holy Spirit's power. It's not just the word, it's his power. The ministry of the word in whatever form could never convert any sinner. For the unbeliever to embrace Christ, there must be supernatural power. It makes no difference who preaches, Paul, Peter, Apollos, Unless the Spirit accompanies the Word, the dead soul will never come to life. Even the ministry of Jesus himself didn't convert anybody without the Spirit. I want you to think of all those Jews who heard him preach and remained in their unbelief. Jesus. 
For the word to convert a sinner, the spirit has to change the heart. And with the external call of the gospel must be the internal call of the spirit. That's why Lydia would never have been converted if the spirit hadn't opened her heart. There are two doors, you see, of the unbelieving soul closed against Christ. One closed door is blindness of mind, not able to understand. Another closed door is hardness of heart, does not accept the things of Christ. So you're not able to understand, and you will not accept the things of Christ. Both of those doors have to be opened by the Spirit to be converted. And that's precisely what God promised as the gospel blessing through Jeremiah. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. A sinner hears the word and he's enlightened by the spirit and he's converted to Christ. And that's what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch. The spirit opened his heart. You know, it's interesting. There's a story about a man named Thomas Scott. He lived in the 18th century. He had already been a minister in the Church of England for several years. Then he discovered that he had never been a true Christian. And over time, the Holy Spirit gradually awakened him to his need of Christ. And Scott's heart was illumined to feel the force of truth. At one particularly crucial juncture in his conversion, he was reading some comments made in conjunction with Revelation 3, where Jesus denounces lukewarmness. And Thomas Scott said this, It came to my heart with such evidence, conviction, and demonstration that it lifted me above the world and produced that victory which faith alone can give and that liberty which uniformly attends the presence of the Spirit of the Lord. Isn't it fascinating that the Spirit used Thomas Scott's own ministry to convert him? It's incredible. So we have the Word and the Spirit and third, spiritual conviction. When the Spirit comes, we're told, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He convinces with respect to the guilt of sin. He convinces with respect to the need for Christ. And he convinces with respect to coming judgment. This is what Philip preached Jesus to the eunuch. And the eunuch said, what prevents me from being baptized? which shows his humility and his repentance for sin. Peter said to the Jews, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And the Ethiopian eunuch wanted to give public expression to his repentance. The same is true with every conversion. We realize our own guilt, not only the danger, but our ill desert. True spiritual conviction will produce a repentance that leads to life. And it's not easy. It's painful, but it brings the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the word, the spirit, conviction, and fourth and finally, transformation. Having been baptized, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. He had been transformed. The old had passed away. Behold, the new had come. And he was baptized with a clear conscience, trusting in Christ, and he was a changed man. His life would never be the same. And that's how the Spirit ordinarily draws a lost soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. He exposes to the Word, he changes the heart, he convicts the soul, he transforms the life.
and one is brought to accept and embrace the offer of salvation. And let me say that sinners are never compelled, but they come willingly to Christ. The regenerate person is able to embrace the Lord Jesus who is offered in the gospel. The world scoffs at this, but we know and give thanks for the triune God who plucks us as brands from the fire. And I pray that that's an encouragement to God's people today. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the record of this Ethiopian eunuch, this remarkable man whom you saved by Christ and brought into the kingdom in a remarkable way. We're thankful for what it teaches us regarding conversion and pray that you'll help us to appreciate and to trust in your word, your spirit, and the work that he does. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.